Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, March 28th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, Ukraine receives deliveries of German and British tanks. So the first batch of British-made Challenger 2 tanks arrived in Ukraine on Monday, as reports said that Berlin also delivered 18 of its Leopard tanks to the country. So the UK is going to send a total of 14 of their Challenger 2 tanks. I'm not sure if they've delivered all of them yet. It said they just started arriving on Monday. But they will be armed with this depleted uranium ammunition, which is radioactive and, of course, linked to cancer and birth defects in Iraq where U.S. forces commonly used uh, depleted uranium. So Britain's deputy defense minister confirmed last week that these Challenger 2s would be armed with depleted uranium, which is very dense, so it makes a good armor-piercing ammunition. And they, they decided to send this and publicize it despite some pretty serious warnings from Russia. One official said that if you send depleted uranium to Ukraine, we're going to treat it as if you're arming them with a dirty bomb. And then over the weekend, Putin announced that Russia will be deploying nuclear weapons to Belarus, and he said the move was a response to the UK arming Ukraine with depleted uranium. So also on Monday, reports said that Germany has delivered 18 of its Leopard tanks to Ukraine. Der Spiegel reported that the last of the tanks left Germany last week and were handed to Ukraine at the border. Poland said in February that it had delivered four Leopard tanks to Ukraine as well. So it looks like they have over 20. I know Finland you know, uh, said they're going to send a few tanks, Spain, I believe, as well. And Germany, they initially said that they were going to put together 60 of these Leopard tanks for Ukraine, but they've fallen pretty short of that goal. I don't even know if they're going to come close to 30. Uh, and when it comes to the U.S. and their tanks that they're sending, they're going to give them the Abrams tanks, 31 of those, and they sped up plans to deliver them to Ukraine. Initially, the U.S. was going to make new Abrams for Ukraine, but now they are going to refurbish older models, but they're still going to take a while to deliver, between 8 and 10 months. So the number of the Challengers, the Leopards, and the Abrams, it still falls far short of what Ukraine has been asking for. Ukraine says they need a lot more. Valery Zelushny, who's the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, back in December, he said in an interview with The Economist that he needed 300 tanks from you know these Western countries to beat Russia. And the U.S. and its allies, they want Ukraine to launch a counteroffensive this spring and hope that the new tanks can help. But Zelensky said the other day that the offensive cannot begin until Western countries send even more weapons. So it sounds like they want more than these tanks. The U.S. and Germany, they've also recently sent a bunch of armored uh, fighting vehicles, the Bradley fighting vehicles, and I, they want them to be used in this counteroffensive at well, as well. But still, y- Ukraine is saying they don't have enough. But still, even though you know Ukraine isn't happy and wants more, the provision of these Western-made tanks to Ukraine still marks such a big escalation in NATO's role in the war. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, he previously ruled out the idea of arming Ukraine with leopards, with tanks, 
And his reasoning was that he was trying to avoid a direct war between NATO and Russia and trying to prevent a nuclear war. That's what he said, uh, you know, last year. But here we have Germany shipping the tanks anyway. All right, the next one here. A Russian official says that Moscow has weapons that can destroy the U.S. So this is Nikolai Petrushev. He is the secretary of the Russian Security Council. He warned Monday that Moscow possesses weapons capable of wiping out an enemy, including the United States. So Petrushev said, quote, Russia is patient and does not intimidate anyone with its military advantage. However, it possesses advanced, unique weapons capable of destroying any enemy, including the United States, in case of a threat to its existence, end quote. So that's Russia's military doctrine. It allows the use of nuclear weapons. If Russian officials believe that Russia is facing an existential threat and, you know, we heard we've heard Putin say that uh, what the West is trying to do in Ukraine, trying to turn the the war into a global conflict is an existential threat to Russia. Um, So that shows, uh, you know, how serious this all is that they're discussing, you know, using nuclear weapons. Petrushev, he added that Russia would be able to respond to a preemptive nuclear strike launched by the U.S. He said, quote, American politicians captivated by their domestic propaganda somehow remain certain that in case of a direct conflict with Russia, the United States is capable of delivering a preemptive missile strike following which Russia will be unable to retaliate. This is short-sighted absurdity, which is also very dangerous, end quote. So he's saying that there are people in the U.S. who think they could destroy Russia without Russia destroying the U.S. I don't know how many people seriously think that, but I do know, you know, there are some some hawks that think, you know, a sort of limited nuclear war with tactical nukes could actually be fought, which is just uh, totally insane because we know that how, you know, and a nuclear exchange would just spiral into a full-blown nuclear war. I don't think there's any way to limit it. Uh, but the warning from Petrushev comes after Putin announced that he was going to send the nukes to Belarus. So, you know, despite these warnings from Russian leaders, the U.S. and its allies, they continue to ramp up support for Ukraine, despite, you know, the, this risk of escalation. And again, they want Ukraine to launch this counteroffensive. It doesn't look like it's going to happen soon, but they're also backing Ukrainian attacks on Crimea, which that's another thing that Russia has made clear. You know, they view the prospect of losing the Crimean Peninsula as a existential threat. Um, Not that it's really under threat like that, but there have been more drone attacks on it. So who knows how Russia can respond? And this is just, you know, charging full steam ahead, trying to support all this uh, against Russia. All right, the next one here, the Senate will vote on appointing an inspector general for Ukraine aid. So the Senate is expected to vote on an amendment this week introduced by Senator Josh Hawley that would require a special inspector general to oversee the $113 billion that has been authorized to spend on the war in Ukraine. So Hawley said that the ideal candidate for the position would be John Sopko, who has served as the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction since 2012, and he's issued scathing reports about U.S. policy and waste in Afghanistan. Hawley said, quote, he's done a terrific job. Maybe he'd like to do this job. 
Uh, maybe he'd like to shift over to Ukraine. I think that he would probably be my first choice or somebody like him, end quote. So Sabko recently warned that he fears the U.S. will repeat the same mistakes it made in Afghanistan in Ukraine. Uh, Sabko said that he is afraid that the U.S. did not learn its lesson in Afghanistan and that, you know, the, the situation in Ukraine, just the nature of it, pouring all this money and weapons in, there's going to be corruption. There's going to, you know, some weapons are going to end up on the black market. So Hawley is trying to include this Ukraine oversight amendment in a bill that the Senate will vote on to repeal the 1991 and 2002 Iraq AUMFs, the authorization for the use of military force. Uh, and repealing those, it looks like you know it's going to happen or the Senate's going to approve it at least. But again, that's not going to change U.S. operations in the Middle East. They're using the 2001 AUMF that was passed right after 9-11 to wage war in Syria, in Iraq, in Somalia, and, you know, drone strikes in Yemen and all that. And that, you know, if they really wanted to change things, they would have to repeal that. But Rand Paul put that up for a vote uh, last week, and it failed pretty miserably. miserably. Only nine senators voted for it. Uh, but anyway, back to this uh, Ukraine situation. So be, his amendment requires 60 votes to pass, which means that it will need some Democratic support. Uh, so I'm not sure if it's going to pass. And I think enough, uh, some Republicans are going to vote against it too, even though more and more Republicans say that they favor this oversight, even the super hawkish ones. Like uh, I'm thinking of Michael McCall, he's in the house head of the foreign affairs committee. You know, he's all about send Ukraine, the long range missiles, send them the F 16s to bomb Crimea, all that. But he says that he favors oversight. It could just be a way to kind of you know, reflect, deflect some of the criticism. Um, but anyway, unfortunately with Hawley is that he, he's a major China hawk and he's been very critical of U.S. support for Ukraine and NATO's expansion into Finland and Sweden because he, he's the only one in the Senate that voted against bringing Finland and Sweden into NATO. But unfortunately, he's doing this because he thinks the U.S. should be focused on building up in the Asia Pacific. In December, he sent a letter to Secretary of State Antony Blinken urging the Biden administration to prioritize arming Taiwan over Ukraine. He said, hey, all those weapons that you're sending Ukraine, uh, you should send them to Taiwan instead. So that's where he's coming from. I think a lot of Republicans that are opposed to arming Ukraine uh, you know, fall in the same category as Hawley, are China Hawks, and think we should be arming Taiwan. Uh, I don't know if they're all as bad as Hawley. I mean, he's introduced legislation uh, really, you know, to give Taiwan billions, military aid, and things like that. All right, the next one here, the EU is planning to invest frozen Russian assets and give the returns to Ukraine. So this is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. The European Union is developing proposals on what to do with assets of the Russian Central Bank that were seized by member states. According to European officials, the bloc may invest the money and give the returns to Ukraine. So a Swedish diplomat who leads the commission exploring on what to do with the Kremlin's money told Politico that whatever decision is made, it will be without precedent. So this is, um, you know, using this money that they've frozen to invest or giving any of it to Ukraine is unprecedented. And it means that they would have to amend their rules for sanctions and frozen funds. Um, yes, they would have to change their sanctions regulations. The current regulations say that once funds are unfrozen, then they have to go back to 
you know, the people that they took them from, that they froze them from. So they're not supposed to use them. So the EU is hoping other Western nations will join in on this scheme. The EU is taking steps in coordination with the group of seven, or sorry, they said that they should take steps in coordination with the group of seven. The commission estimates that EU and G7 countries have frozen about $300 billion in Russian central bank assets. It believes if this money is invested, it can earn about a 2.6% return. Um, so, and you know, the U S recently, they just took some money from a Russian, uh, billionaire. It was a few million, I believe it was about 5 million and gave it to Ukraine or something. So there, you know, they passed these laws to do that, um, or they changed some rules to do that. So it really is setting this really dangerous precedent. And you, you know, you think about the U S what if, you know, a country froze, uh, American funds because the U.S. was waging a war somewhere and started spending it or investing it like this. Uh, all right. Uh, the next one here, Congress to invite South Korea's Yoon to, to a, give a uh, address. So South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul is expected to receive an invitation to address Congress when he visits Washington in April. As American hawks are looking to strengthen the alliance with Seoul to work against North Korea, and also China. This is according to a report from Nikkei Asia. So President Biden is scheduled to host Yoon for a state visit and a dinner on April 26th. Representative Young Kim, she is a Republican from California. She told Nikkei that the plan is for Yoon to address a joint session of Congress during that visit. So Kim and several other members of Congress, including uh, McCall, the head of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, They've sent a letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy urging him to invite Yoon to make the, the address. And Kim said she's optimistic about the matter and thinks that it's going to happen and that it's just a matter of time before McCarthy extends the invitation. And according to South Korean media, Yoon has requested to address Congress. So Yoon came into office in May 2022, vowing to take a harder line on North Korea than his predecessor, Moon Jae-in. Now, tensions on the Korean Peninsula have skyrocketed as the U.S. and South Korea have resumed massive war games after a five-year break, and Pyongyang launched a record number of missiles in 2022, and they've kept it up. They've been launching a lot of missiles. And Hawks in Congress, you know, something pretty revealing in this uh, story here is that the, you know, Hawks in the U.S. prefer Yoon's approach to the North rather than Moon's. Moon wanted reunification. Moon wanted to ease tensions. And a congressional source told Nikkei Asia that they were not happy about Moon's push for a formal declaration to end the Korean War. That was something that Moon really wanted before uh, he left, but he never got it. And this congressional source said that it, that it was seen as a concession to a tyran uh, tyrannical regime. So I guess, you know, the past five years when there were not you know, missile tests. I believe they North Korea started launching missiles again in 2021 and really ramped up in 2022. But, you know, the Trump administration paused those big war games uh, to leave room for diplomacy. Trump's efforts were, you know, sabotaged by, you know, all the people he hired, like John Bolton. But it did ease tensions. Him shaking hands with Kim, I think, was really good. And, uh, you know, Yoon, sorry, Moon, speaking with Kim Jong-un and all that, uh, happened, you know, and there wasn't all these missile tests and war games, but now there are, and then 
Congress is is happy about it, apparently. And now they're going to have Yoon come and he's probably going to say, you know, I want nukes or you should deploy nukes to the South Korea and everybody's going to give him a standing ovation. And this is also part of, uh, you know, the U.S. policy against China. The U.S. just wants to build up in that region. And I think by giving Yoon whatever he wants, you know, sending more bombers and aircraft carriers, uh, that's all part of that strategy, too. All right. The next one here. Another South Korea, a U.S. aircraft carrier is conducting drills with the South Korean military. So the U.S. aircraft carrier USS Nimitz and its strike group began joint exercises in South Korean waters on Monday as Washington and Seoul continue to dramatically expand their military cooperation. A few hours before the drills began, North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles into the sea, likely uh, as a response to the new military exercises between the U.S. And the South, so the Nimitz and the three other ships that are part of its strike group are expected to arrive in the South Korean port of Busan on Tuesday. The U.S. began sending aircraft carriers to the Korean Peninsula again in the fall of 2022 after a four-year lull of such deployment. So that was part of it. The U.S. wasn't sending bombers, wasn't sending aircraft carriers during that time. And uh, a... Rear Admiral Christopher Sweeney, he's the commander of Carrier Strike Group 11. He said the U.S., well, he, I'll read his quote. He said, quote, the United States has deployable strategic assets at the ready on every day. We can continue to deploy those assets and we will, end quote. So the U.S. and South Korea did announce earlier this year that they would expand joint military exercises and that the U.S. would deploy more strategic assets to the region, including bombers. The war games ensure that tensions will remain high on the peninsula as they will continue to provoke more North Korean weapons tests. So neither side is going to back down here. Uh, you know, just who knows how this is all going to play out. And, you know, this is an issue I think just most people aren't really aware of that things are getting really tense again on the Korean peninsula. And they will continue to, as last week, South Korea's defense ministry said that they're going to hold their largest ever live fire exercise with the U.S. this June. All right, the next one here, this is from Middle East Eye. Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, suspended his judicial overhaul plan amid protests. So Israelis woke up to chaos on Monday as protests over Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial overhaul engulfed the country. Flights were grounded at Ben-Gurion International Airport while Israeli embassies across the world stopped work in solidarity with demonstrators. Over 80,000 anti-government protesters have gathered outside the Knesset in Jerusalem, according to police sources cited in Haaretz. Former defense minister and opposition figure Benny Gantz said, quote, We don't have another country. We don't have another homeland. We don't have another path, only a Jewish and democratic country, end quote. Right-wing figures within Netanyahu's coalition appear to be gearing up for a protracted fight. Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich joined calls earlier on Monday for a counter-demonstration in Jerusalem in support of the judicial reforms. Uh, Far-right National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir also tweeted out support for counter-protests. Ben-Gavir threatened to resign if the reforms were halted, were halted but continued to support the government from the outside. So Netanyahu blinks. By Monday evening, Netanyahu blinked. The Israeli leader announced he was delaying his government's contentious remake of the country's courts. 
He said, quote, out of a sense of national responsibility, out of a will to prevent a rupture among our people, I have decided to pause the second and third reading of this bill, end quote. Ben Gavir agreed to the delay in return for allowing the creation of a national guard loyal to his ministry. So Ben Gavir is one of the most radical members of this coalition, and it looks like he got Netanyahu to agree, basically, to give him a militia. Uh, so he wouldn't resign over the pause of this. So um, that's not good. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, interesting that Netanyahu did finally buckle to the pressure for for a while there. It didn't seem like anything was going to face him. I guess after he fired his defense minister, the protests really heated up. And again, people protesting, you know, the Israeli embassies, shutting down operations, people in the military refusing to serve. So it's a pretty serious, pretty serious protests that have been going on. And then I know some counter, some pro-judicial overhaul protesters uh, have have been going on now since Netanyahu said that he paused it. And other protests, there's still a lot of other protests going on. So the situation is still pretty chaotic in Israel. All right, the next one, I just left the one up from yesterday about Biden being committed to keeping troops in Syria. And then the next one here, Hungary's parliament okays Finland's NATO membership. So Hungary's parliament voted on Monday to ratify Finland's NATO membership, bringing the alliance one step closer to expanding on Russia's border. Hungary's National Assembly approved Finland's NATO bid in a vote of 182 to 6. Finland has already amended its laws to join NATO and now only needs the approval of Turkey's parliament. And Turkey's parliament is expected to approve the bill soon. Uh, a committee in the Turkish parliament approved the bill last week, and now it needs still needs a vote from the full parliament, which is expected to take place before Turkey's May 14th presidential elections. So when initially applying for NATO membership, Finland said that it would only join with Sweden, but Finnish officials have abandoned that position. Now that Erdogan has said Sweden hasn't done enough to join the alliance, but he's ready to approve Finland. And Hungary is also pushing back its ratification of Sweden's membership. The Hungarian government of Viktor Orban, the prime minister, is not happy with Swedish criticism of his government, of Orban's government. So they said they're going to delay it. So who knows when they're going to vote on Sweden. But Finland's really the big one because Finland shares an over 800-mile border with Russia and now, you know, that region is going to be further militarized. Russia has plans to send more troops, beef up their military over there, you know, on the border, also uh, in the Baltic Sea there in the Gulf of Finland. And I think uh, it's just going to raise tensions. And who knows what NATO is going to end up putting in Finland? You know, this opens up a lot of possibilities. <clears throat> Excuse me. Finnish officials have said that they're open. They haven't ruled out hosting nukes. Uh, I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon because, you know, first the first step I think would be Poland, but it's always possible down the, down the line. Uh, so, you know, who knows uh, if NATO is going to try to put these battle groups in Finland. A lot of things are, are possible now. All right. The last one here, this is from the South China Morning Post and Taiwan's former prime minister, sorry, former president has arrived in China. So former Taiwanese President Ma Ying Zhao voiced hopes for a gradual return to warmer cross-strait ties as he embarked upon a landmark visit to mainland China amid public anger back home 
over Taipei's loss of yet another diplomatic ally to Beijing. Uh, Honduras uh, has severed diplomatic ties with Taiwan. They were one of the few countries that had formal relations with Taiwan, and they've opened up with China. That's China's been kind of on this diplomatic push to get more countries to do that, and they've been pretty successful in recent years. Now, I think there's only 13 countries or maybe 12 now remaining that recognize Taiwan, and that includes the Vatican. Um, so Ma said, you know, he uh, is hoping to reduce, help reduce tensions across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, he's the first former or current Taiwanese head of government to make such a journey since the Chinese Civil War ended more than seven decades ago. So it's a significant trip. But he had long been involved in cross-strait affairs dating back to when he was 37 years of age, and he served twice as the chairman of Taiwan's Beijing-friendly opposition party, the Kuomintang. So now he's 73 and retired, although I still think he's involved with the party, um, but he decided to finally make his trip to the to the mainland. Um, so we'll see. Uh, this is big, just again, because I think you know, with this election coming up in 2024, I think it's good to see that Kuomintang party members are really uh, looking to reduce tensions with the mainland. There was also a Kuomintang delegation uh, a few months ago, and then a Chinese delegation visited them in Taiwan. So this election is going to be big, and I'm sure the U.S. is going to try to influence it. China is going to try to influence it. There's going to be a lot of eyes on, on that election. It could really change how things are going over Taiwan. Um, so this, according to the South China Morning Post, when Ma was president of Taiwan from 2008 to 2016, he oversaw cross-strait ties at their warmest ever. Um, so that gives you a sense of what could happen uh, in that if the Kuomintang wins another election. Uh, but that is it for the news. Go check out our viewpoints. One from Doug Bandow, a litany of pride over at the American Conservative about the Iraq invasion. We have one from John V. Walsh. The Ukraine war enters the 2024 presidential election stage right. Uh, so it's about, uh, you know, the the prospective candidates for 2024, DeSantis and Trump and what they've been saying about Ukraine. We have one from Norman Solomon. We don't have to choose between nuclear madmen. That is... Uh, you go check that out. And then we have one from Ron Paul, the best way to protect U.S. troops in Syria. And of course, his solution is to get out. And our spotlight from James Bovard, was the Iraq war the biggest con of the 21st century? That's over at the Libertarian Institute. I would say uh, that it probably was. Uh, but that's everything. Um, you can always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. Share it around. Uh, leave comments. I appreciate everything. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.